Welcome to the Valley Church. Our mission is to see changed lives, and we hope this relevant teaching inspires you to take the next step in your journey. Thanks for checking out the podcast and enjoy the message. Well, good morning. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome everyone joining us too online. Don't be a stranger. Let our hosts know that you're with us. They would love to interact with you, pray with you if you have any prayer requests. You'll see on the screen behind me, or if you're online, you'll see it on your monitors. Um, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that Pastor Andy, Andy Monin, who's the lead pastor of the Valley over our campuses, the third one we're launching in seven weeks in Sydney, hopefully one in a couple years out of here, because the best way to reach people who don't know Jesus is starting new churches. So that's why we do it, by the way. That's actually evidence-based database. But he was uh, elected and voted in as the new district superintendent, uh, which some of you know what that means. So a lot of you probably don't. Essentially means that he now is leading over leadership over 53 churches in Northwest Ohio. So uh, pray for him. <laughs> That's a big job. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a district level leadership position. He's the right guy. Um, I'm super excited for him and, and for our district and for all these churches. He's a, not only a good friend, uh, really last seven years, but a mentor and um, so anyhow, he's, gonna, he's accepted that role. He'll be, he'll be moving on from the Valley in a month or so uh, with that. But, and some of you know him, some of you don't. Um, so I shared this one. I preached at Piqua last week. Of course, a lot of them know him because he's been there since uh, 1994. <laughs> he was part of the launch team and actually started the church. And people were asking, how can we show our love? And I, so I said, this is how we're going to show our love, uh, a love offering. Um, so if you would want to, you can scan the QR code. I'll send an email out this week for that. In fact, they're going to take a uh, six-week sabbatical. Um, that's something that's smart, you know, maybe after 28 years or 29 years of ministry, I was like, you know, you guys need to just take six weeks or whatever and, and take a break. You got a big job coming up. I highly suggested to them that they should visit as many major league baseball stadiums. Um, and they did not seem like, I was like, I, I, if I had six weeks, like I can't think of anything, my wife could, but I can't think of anything else I'd want to do. I don't think they'll do that. But if you, you can scan that, like I said, I'll send it out. Just if you want to give towards that to just demonstrate your love and appreciation. And he'll be here next week, preach, and I'll be there. Uh, and he'll even share some next steps here. Um, really doesn't change much for you, but he'll be just sharing some of the future things at the Valley. So, um, hey, uh, we're in this series called Tough Times. What a great topic in the summer, like exciting, so, so light of suffering, right? Um, you know, this is something that we all experience. Uh, I think Ryan, he did a marvelous job last week. I think he asked the same question here that I asked there was, raise your hand if you love suffering. And I said, I love audience participation, but no one participated, myself included, because <laughs> we run from suffering. We don't want suffering. We don't like suffering. Why would we say more suffering? But we have to ask the question, what's God say about this? What's God say about this topic of suffering? What's God say about what, how he can use it? And so uh, we're diving in this month. If you're looking for a book of the Bible to, to be reading along with, we are in Job. So it's a cool way that we're going to be plowing through together, learning together, discovering together. I want to open up today talking about something uh, maybe intriguing, like why are you starting with this topic? But I want to talk about spiritual warfare. And you're going to see how I pull it all together. But spiritual warfare is real. Bible in Ephesians tells us that our battle is not against people, it's not against stuff, or it says not against flesh and blood, but it's against the principalities of this dark world. There is darkness and there is light. There is evil and there is good. 
And sometimes when it comes to Satan and, and the evil of this world, we do one of two things. We believe that he's under every rock and, and he's the reason for everything, including my own stupid decisions. It, Satan made me do it. The devil made me do it. No, I did it. Okay? Or we just kind of like, we pretend he doesn't exist. Right? We don't even think about. And I think either, just like most things that are on pendulum swing, are, is a dangerous territory. We have to understand that there is darkness and there is light. And Satan is very strategic. He's very intentional. He's very specific. His intent is to seek, kill, and destroy. His intent is to take us out. His intent is to not use anything that happens in this world as for good. And so I wanna, we'll look at that in just a moment. Before I do that, I want to share about this old lady. She showed up at church one day, first time at church, this is a small country church. It was her first Sunday and she gets out of the car. She comes up the ramp and there's a greeter there as there should be a greeter there, meets her at the door and takes her by the arm and says, ma'am, where would you like to sit? I'll take you to your seat. And she said, sir, I would like you to take me to the very front row. I would love to sit on the front row. And he said, oh, ma'am, I'll take you wherever, but you, you don't want to sit on the front row. Uh, our pastor is boring. To which she said, well, sir, do you know who I am? He's like, no, I don't. Well, I am the pastor's mother. <laughs> to which he replies, ma'am, do you know who I am? She said, no. He said, good. <laughs> good. <laughs> we, we have to know who our enemy is. We have to know what we're dealing with. We have to know how Satan works. We have to know how he operates. In fact, it tells us this in John chapter 8, says this, that the devil was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is how much truth in him? Zero, zilch, nada, no truth in him. When he lies, not, did, did you notice it says, it doesn't say if he lies, when he lies, he speaks his native tongue. He speaks what comes naturally to him. He speaks on how he's wired, how he operates, for he's a liar and he is the one who created lies. He's the father. He's the one who initiated lies from the beginning. He is the Lord or leader of lies. That is how he operates. That is how he functions in my life. That is how he functions in your life. He takes what's truth, he twists it one degree, and he gets this to buy into something or fall into something or believe something that is totally wrong just by changing it by one degree. We have to understand what we're up against. Now, when I coached high school, I coached high school baseball for a long time, but in baseball, you don't do much scouting unless you get to the playoffs and, and you do that. But it's just not a thing you do. But I coached high school basketball for a, a couple years. I was the head coach for, for one year. And when you, in basketball, you scout the opponent. You go you, you're yourself and you go watch them play or you send one of your assistants or you get game film. That's just what high school coaches, we, you, know, you, you ask for this tape and this tape. What, you know. And so you spend a lot of time, at least I did, I spent a lot of time watching tape. You see what kind of defense do they run? What kind of offense do they run? How's their best player function? You look at maybe a game that the best player struggled with and what did the opposition do? You develop a game plan. Why do you develop a game plan? To win, right? You get, develop a game plan because you need to know how the opposition functions so you can put a strategy I would then would put a strategy called the game plan, a very comprehensive game plan is how I'm wired so that we then could be successful. Now, the interesting thing is that the Bible tells us Satan's game plan. We're not left in the dark. We find it in Genesis chapter 3, how he functions, how he deceives, how he lies, how he's cunning. The, we find it some other places, but the other place we find out how he functions, how he operates, what his game plan is, is Job chapter 1. 
So we're going to continue. Uh, maybe you heard it last week, but we're going to continue with this. I don't have it on the screen because I like Bibles in hand. So if you have the Bibles from your row, feel free to grab that. It's on page 402. 402. If you have it on your phone, I'd encourage you. I'm going to be in what's called the New International Version or NIV. That's the Bibles in your rows. If you have it on your phone, you can pick that one or you can read it in Mandarin. If you understand Mandarin, it might be pretty cool. If you don't, I don't know. Okay. All right. We're ready to move on. This is things my wife says. Just don't say those things. Just move. Just talk. Okay. Verse 11. But now stretch out your hand. This is Satan talking because uh, he had said... Job, God had pointed out this guy, Job, who was fearless, who, would, who, um, who was blameless, I should say, who was following after God. And Satan's like, yeah, he follows after you because his life's perfect. He has no reason to, to run away from you. So he says, but stretch out your hand, Satan talking to God, and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the older brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants. And I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They made the, put the servants to the sword, and I am only one who is escaped to tell you. This is a really horrible recurring theme. While he was still speaking, and another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters are feasting and drinking wine at the older brother's house. When suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house, it collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you at this. Job got up tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground in worship. Now, I don't know if Ryan mentioned this last week or not, but it's very important to understand where in the history of time the story of Job happened. When a few Bibles like mine, right, you open it up and think, okay, this story happened somewhere in the middle, right? It's in the middle of the Bible. It happened in the middle of, of human history. That's actually not accurate. The story of Job happened in the time of Genesis, in fact, it happened between Noah, more than likely between Noah and Abraham. Why do we know that or how do we know that? Because the manuscripts of this have been found, that have been found, the writing the, uh, is so ancient, the, the, the language is so ancient that it's been dated back to some of the earliest time in all of human history. Now, why is that important? It's important because one of the first interactions we see that God has with all of humanity is through the lens of suffering. And this, this, this conversation that happens between Job and God and, 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 and then Job's friends, if you read on, and Job's wife, and it's 40 or 50 chapters of this whole interaction, deals with one topic, suffering. In fact, as I shared with them last week, I said, this deals with the, 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 the topic of the theology of suffering. Now, growing up, I heard that word theology. You've maybe heard the word theology before, and then you break it down into its Latin, and you have theos, which is God, and you have ology, which is the study of. But yet I would go to libraries, and I would see all these books on theology. I'm like, how many books on just God can you have? Like, it just seemed like, I don't understand. Like, isn't theology, like, just beyond God? Like, how does this work? And then as I, I'm a geek, by the way, I'll just be, i comfortable in my skin. So I like to nerd out and read theology. I like to study. I like to write. I like to do all those things that I'm sure most of you don't. I understand why. 
But as I've come and made sense of theology, I've come to this conclusion. Theology is simply this. What God says about a topic. What God says about a topic. For example, we just got done talking about the theology of marriage. What's God say about marriage? Theology of sexuality. Theology of the church. Theology of end times. Theology of mercy. Theology of grace. Theology of sin. You see where I'm going with this? I could do this for a while. Don't let me, okay? Right? Everything that we have to discuss. Theology of suffering. The question is, what does God say about suffering? Now, the only way we discover what God says about something is we have to go and see what it says on TikTok. No, wrong, okay. We have to go to the one who is the authority who wrote the book, if you will. There are 40 different authors in 66 books, but it's all God-inspired. 2 Timothy 2.2 tells, or 2 Timothy tells us that, okay? That 1 Timothy 2.2 tells us that all God's word is inspired. And it's useful for teaching and rebuking and encouraging and helping people fight, figure out more about Jesus. And so what does God say about suffering? And that's part of what this whole series is about. But today what I want to look at is the theology of sovereignty. We probably say that God is sovereign. Well, we might not know what we mean when we say that, but what does it mean to be sovereign? Well, God's in control. Or God is uh, all-powerful. But then when we hit this topic of suffering, this really starts to mess with our minds, doesn't it? Let me just ask the questions out loud that you might ask. I know I have. If God was all-powerful, then dot, 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 right? Then why did this happen? If God was really in control, then dot, 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 right? If God was really good, then why did he allow this person to die? If God was really in control, why did he allow me to get sick? If God was really sovereign, if God was really all-powerful, then why are there so many people who are hungry in this world? This is called real talk. If we don't have the conversation about this stuff, in fact, I've read books on this. A lot of people walk away from the faith when they graduate high school because in high school and middle school, and we don't operate like this, by the way, and in elementary school, they would ask these questions and people would just tell them there are no answers to the question or they would ask these questions and they would say, oh, you just have to believe in God. That's not the answer to the question of why does suffering happen? Believing, like, that's a terrible answer. You're like, well, you're a pastor. Believing, no, the answer, I'm saying the answer to that question, you didn't answer the question. We have to grapple with this. We have to wrestle with this. We have to make sense of some of this. Why in the world is suffering allowed to happen? And is there a greater purpose to it? Is there something that God's wanting to do in the midst of it? And that's why when I look at the sovereignty of God, I don't look at the powerful aspect. I don't even look at the goodness aspect. I don't even look at the all-knowing. That's omniscience anyhow and not all-powerful. I look at his presence. Because what I have to, I don't, I don't think it's, it's all about asking the right questions. I don't think asking, is he all-powerful is the right question to ask when it comes to suffering. I don't think that asking if, he, if he's good is the right question to ask. I think the question to ask in the context of suffering is to say, is he there? And is he working in and through it? Is he present? And is he going to reveal himself in some new way to me? So the next passage we're going to look at is an intriguing passage. You're like, why would we look at this passage? What does this have to do about suffering? We're going to, um, hang with me, okay? We're going to be in Matthew chapter 14. So if you want to follow along, it's going to be on page 
796 of the Bibles in your row. 796. If you want to listen, that's fine too. If you have it on your phone, that's great. Verse 22 in chapter 14, it says this. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples. Now they had just fed the 5,000. You can read that. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. That crowd at just 20,000 people just ate. After he had dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat, the boat that he had told them go out on this voyage, the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, and it was being buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. You can read this story in a couple other gospels. This was a massive storm. The Sea of Galilee was where they are on. I've never been there, but I've read a lot about it and talked to people who had. It sits down in. To this day, it's known for out of nowhere, horrific, life-threatening storms. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified as you and I would be. It's a ghost, they, they said, and they cried in fear. But immediately Jesus said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. I read this passage a lot. This is why you just keep reading the Bible, let the Bible read you. Something new hit me this time. And it started right at the very beginning. It said that he told them to take the boat out on the water. You, you catch that? They didn't do this on their own. He sent them out on the boat, and then what happened? Then the storm came. This is fascinating. Sometimes we're taught or we believe the lie of the enemy. That's why I started the sermon with this, and you'll see how I keep coming back to it. That the reason that you're experiencing suffering is because you're living in disobedience. I'm not saying it, it, could, it could be, but but I don't think a lot of times it is. You see in this passage, it, they were literally in the center, if there is such a thing, they were in the center of God's will. They were being obedient. Jesus said, take the boat and go out into the water. And what did they do? Simple answer. They took the boat and they went out in the water. They were obedient. He asked them to do something. They were obedient. After they obey him in the midst of doing everything they're supposed to do, in the midst of following him the best that they know how, and the best of, and just being obedient, being followers of him, the storm came. You ever experienced that in your life? You're not making terrible decisions. You're not living in disobedience. You're not living in sin. You're just living life and then... Boom, the storm comes. The phone call, the diagnosis, the decision of someone else, the thing that happens to you, right? Right? I mean, we've been there. Most of us have been there. I don't want to be the fatalistic guy, but if you haven't been there, it's probably going to happen. And we have to say, what in the world's going on here? What in the world is God trying to teach us here? What in the world is he trying to show us? Now, before I, I, I unpack that, I want to just talk to you pastorally. Uh, some of what I'm talking about when it comes to suffering, I even shared this last week with the audience, with the, with the church in Piqua. I said, I said, God's more concerned about your character than he is your comfort. He's more concerned about us being more Christ-like than us being comfortable. But I caveated that with something. I said, I, I also understand that there's people in this room there, and I, I'm sure here, 
who you've experienced some suffering in your life that is unspeakable. You've experienced some pain in your life, potentially at the hands of someone else, that is, it is from hell. It is pure evil. You've experienced some things in your life, loss, health, other incredibly painful things. And before we unpack a few things, what I want to just tell you is, I'm sorry those happened. I really am. I don't know all the reasons. I'll give you some hope here in a minute. But I'm really sorry that happened. We live in a broken, fallen world. We live in a world where Satan, as we saw, he said the game plan was clear. Genesis 3, Job 1, we see it other times in Scripture. Satan wants to take life from you. God wants to give you life. Let's say that again. Satan wants to take life from you. He wants to take as much of your life from you, as much, of, as much joy from you, as much hope from you, as much enjoyment from you, as much purpose from you, as much comfort from you. And, and Satan want, or God wants to come and, and he wants to give you joy. And he wants to give you peace. And he wants to give you meaning. And he wants to bring healing. And he wants to bring restoration. And he wants to bring redemption. So how's all this work together? Because they all are working together, aren't they? The suffering, the pain, and then God. Here's what we see in this passage. Jesus did not go on a rescue mission that day. He didn't walk on the water to rescue them. Notice he doesn't do that. You ever notice? A lot of times we think he didn't. He went on a reveal mission. Jesus did not go on a rescue mission. He went on a reveal mission. How do I know that? Because it tells us that in verse 27. It says this, But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Some translations get it better than that. He actually is saying, I am. The same words that the Father said when people ask, Who are you? I am. It is I. Don't be afraid. You see, in this moment, this was a kairos moment. That's the Greek word for time. That's an aha. There's chronos, which is like wristwatch or chronological time. Then there's kairos, which is a moment of time. They had needed to have a kairos moment. Jesus was going to reveal himself to them in a way that they had never experienced before. And that's what I want you to hear today, church. In the midst of suffering... What Jesus wants to do as the sovereign Lord is to reveal himself to you in ways that you would have never experienced him had that suffering not happened. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus caused that suffering. But what I am telling you is, and I can tell you from experience, and I can even tell from heads going up and down who had some life under their belt, who have had experiences of suffering, in the midst of that suffering, if you allowed him to, Jesus revealed himself in ways to you that you would have never experienced of him without the suffering. That really is hard to, to grapple with, isn't it? But if that stuff doesn't happen, we're going to get an incomplete picture of who Jesus is. And more so, when it comes to suffering, and I've told countless people this, especially when the pain is immense, you have one of two choices. 
You either run to Jesus or you run away from him. I'm just, right? It is. It's what happens. When you're, you and I are in pain and when we're suffering and when we're hurting, at some point, I'm not saying you don't go, it's not, I'm not saying it's instantaneous. It's a process. It's a process of, of, of a lot of tears. It's a process of asking t- the questions. It's a process of doubt. It's a process of anger. God can handle that, by the way. But you and I have to reach some point in the midst of that suffering where we're either going to run to Jesus and let, himself re- let him reveal himself to us in ways that we could have never imagined that will change the trajectory of your life because he is good. It starts with his revelation, but then his goodness is manifested in that revelation. Or you and I run away. And I'm just telling you from personal experience, when I run away, when you run away, it doesn't change anything. It doesn't make anything better. Because you're not letting him reveal himself. Actually, what you and I are doing is we're buying into the lie of Satan. We're buying into that lie who's saying, God is not good. God is not, he doesn't have your best in mind. He, why, he could have stopped this and he didn't stop this. He could have done this. And you and I go into this abyss, into this spiral abyss, and we distance and we draw and we don't even know we're doing it because that's the lie of enemy. It subtly happens where we just pull ourselves away from others seen people do this all the time. I've done it too. We pull ourselves out of community. That means you're free picking for the enemy. And we pull ourselves out of the gathered church and we pull ourselves away from God. And I guarantee you 100%, you'll never get healing. You'll never become whole. You'll never be able to forgive if that's what needs to happen. The only way that happens is if you allow Jesus to reveal himself. Now, here's what's really hard. We always, we pray this even, we even say, that, hey, just rescue me. Just, would you please, God, take this away. God, would you please just rescue me from this situation? And this is really hard. This is really hard to say even. <laughs> I don't think a lot of times God wants to immediately rescue us until he reveals himself to us. If he just rescued us from us, would we, I don't know if it would change our relationship with him. Now, I'm not saying he's just going to let you suffer, although I guess there'd be a lot of Christians in Iran and Iraq and China right now who would disagree with me, (laughs) right? Maybe he will, but in the midst of that, he will never, ever leave you. He will never, ever forsake you. He will never turn away from you. Why do I, why can I say that? Because it's a promise, And when he makes a promise, he can't break his promises because if he did, it would blow up everything and this game would be over. This would be gone. This whole thing would end, just go be atheist, agnostic, I don't know. That's how big of a deal. He cannot break his promise. Here's the other thing. Some of you are ready to hear this. Some of you are still in the process, but maybe go back and watch this in a year or so. When he reveals himself to you, revelation always happens before calling. See, in the midst of your suffering, no suffering is wasted in God's view, ever. And once he starts revealing himself to you, and once you start to discover him in ways that you've never discovered him before, and once you discover 
who you are in ways that you never knew existed because of the Holy Spirit's got power and presence working in you, what he then starts to do is he starts to put a call on your life that would have never happened had the suffering not happened and his presence being, and you, you allowing his presence to come in and transform you, your relationship with him and his relationship with you. And then you start to discover why you're here. It's so crazy to think about this, but in so many cases of life, our calling is precipitated by pain and suffering. I didn't come up with this saying, but I've never forgotten it, that your mess someday will become your message. Your mess someday will become your message, but only if you don't buy the lie of the enemy who says distance, he's bad, he doesn't care about you. It's only if you lean into his presence. And I'm telling you, this is the hope. I told you, you always got to have hope in a message. Why? Because that's full of hope. I don't know all the answers to the suffering. If you came here today thinking, Mark's going to tell us for once and for all why suffering happens. I'm sorry, but I'm totally disappointing you. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not only not smart enough, but I don't even know if there is an answer. I don't know. And we're going to cover in another sermon why bad things happen. I think sometimes we do focus a lot on just the bad and we forget to thank God for all the good. I know I can. So I think we do have to consider how much are we thanking him for good. But I don't have all those answers. I don't think there are. And I, I, don't, I don't even think that's, again, it's about asking the right question to get the right answer. And I think the right question is, where is God in the midst of suffering? And the answer to that question is, he's right there. And he's desperately wanting to reveal himself to you in ways you've never experienced before so that he can give you a mission, a calling. He can give you a mission just like he gave the disciples. Look at the sequence of events after this. These guys who were flunkies, that's why they were back. That's why they were available to be, when, they, when Jesus said, come follow me, they had flunked out of rabbinical school. They went back to the family business. That's how it worked. That's how I know. They, they were, they were, they had their issues just like you and I, but as he continued to reveal himself, they discovered a purpose for their life and a mission for their life that they all, all of them went and died for. Except John, he ended up on an island by himself. Most of you know, some of you know, at least a year or so ago, I went through an issue with my neck and spinal cord. And even the six months before then, I went through my season of suffering went through the season of, you know, you know, seeing all the symptoms that aligned with horrible things like ALS and Parkinson's and MS and, and going through that season of just, God, why, right? I went from healthy to like having trouble walking. And you start, your mind start, the enemy and our own minds, right, start playing games with us. You know, hey, your, your life expectancy is not going to be as long and you're not going to be able to throw a ball with your kids and you're going to be in a wheelchair and, you're, and then you're, you know, yeah, that goes, right? You've been on those hamster wheels, like we're going to have to get a new car. I can't, my wife's going to drive me. I mean, all those, th- all that anxiety, and then what's that do? It breeds anxiety. And then what's that do? And then I started withdrawing and what's that lead to? Some depression. And you go through all those things. And I had that season where I was just not running to Jesus. I was running away. And I wasn't saying I was done with him or anything like that, but I was not going to him for, for wisdom and for help and for clarity. I wasn't seeking his presence. I was seeking the presence of Google <laughs> or seeking the presence of doctors and all that kind of stuff. And then at some point, I don't have a moment, but at some point I just got to the point where I was like, I don't want to live. I don't, 
I don't want to be this guy. I don't want to be angry. I don't want to be bitter. I don't want to whatever. And I just started, I just said, God help. It's the best prayer in the Bible, by the way. When, Jesus, when it's later in the story, Peter starts walking on the water and he starts thinking, he's like, Jesus, help me. It's a wonderful prayer. <laughs> um, I start every day with it. Um, and, and it started transforming. And here, uh, here's the short version of the story. In the midst of that, I experienced, in the midst of that suffering, I experienced the presence of God in my life like I never would have if that had not happened. And how he started to transform me was this. And maybe some of you have noticed that even in my, in my leadership. God has opened my eyes to the suffering of people like I had never experienced before, especially those who have physical suffering. I never noticed how many people walk with limps. There's a lot. I never realized how many people just have gait issues, G-A-I-T, issues. I never realized how many people are with wheelchair. I mean, just I, to this day, I'm in an airport. And just, it, it is so, and he's turned my heart beyond that even to those who are just broken. And you've heard me a lot talking about, we just got to unleash more of heaven on earth. We got to unleash healing. We got to unleash restoration. We got to, that is where God has, I don't even believe my calling's to be the pastor here. I believe this calling is to play a role in seeing suffering as much as we can eradicated as people meet Jesus and understand who he is and what he can do for them. And church, that would never have happened if I hadn't gone through that two-year season of life. And I actually got to the place, this is not some hyper-spiritual place because I'm definitely not that guy. And this is not some morbid thing either. But I, I got to the time in prayer where I said, God, I want to be healed, but I don't ever want to forget what it was like to have this relationship with you and this dependency. I don't want to, and he's answering, he's answering that prayer because I still, there's certain things that just aren't totally healing. Um, and I'm, I'm kind, you know, I'll just be straight up. I'm kind of okay with that. I'm not because I really want to play softball again and some other stuff. But I'm in this season of, he and I and our relationship are like they've never been before. And he's created this mission of my life and mission of the church as a leader I wouldn't change it for the world. I really wouldn't. Now, that doesn't change the pain some of you are in right now. That doesn't change some of the hurt that some of you have experienced in the past. So what I want to do as we close today, typically I um, will listen to the songs during the week and I just spend a lot of time meditating. I let the Spirit speak to me and and just kind of see where, you know, kind of lead after we plan, then kind of where is he taking things? Well, I've just been beyond swamped lately. And um, so the first time I heard the song set was at the first service today. And that last song comes up. And I'm hearing it in real time. And God's just like, oh, what a perfect song for today. Wow. Like Shelly's really smart, by the way. They, they, they plan that intentionally. I'm like, we, we need to bring that back. We need to have a time. We have a few moments left here. I just want to give you a chance to respond today while we sing this song. Um, listen to the words of it. Maybe you just need to come up and pray. Pray for, pray for God's presence. Maybe not pray anymore for him to rescue you, but for him to reveal himself to you. Maybe you bring a, maybe a couple, a husband and wife come up or some friends come up. We just pray. We pray at your seat. You don't have to come up. There's nothing special about coming up. But you, you kneel at your seat and you pray.
But I don't think we leave here today without some of you meeting Jesus. Without some of you experiencing how he wants to reveal himself to you in some new way. And I had a deep sense this as the week went on today, not even know, that some of you today, for the very first time, are going to see how he's going to use what has happened in the past to put a mission and calling in your life like you never thought you could have. And you're going to wake up tomorrow with some purpose in life, or at least a sense of some purpose that's coming that you haven't experienced in years, if not decades. Are you ready? Are we ready? Let's see what happens. Father, come meet us. Come reveal yourself to us. Come heal what needs to be healed. But come show us, show yourself to us in a way that we've never experienced before. I pray that you would just come and flood this place, meet each person exactly where they need to be met. And maybe they need to hear the words, I am, don't be afraid. Here I am, do not be afraid. Would you stand with me as we close? Respond as you feel led. Thanks for joining us today. To stay up to date with our weekly messages, make sure to subscribe and follow us on social media. You can check us out on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, or download our app to stay connected with all things The Valley. And if today's message impacted you, share it with a friend, because changed lives change lives.